I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. As we look, give attention. we're actually going to give attention to a couple passages this morning, but we'll, uh, as our base of operation, uh, begin by looking at verses 42 to 47. Uh, if you've not noticed, I, I did put out a, a new handout uh, tonight uh, just as I came in the door, so if you've not gotten it, it's on the back table. I forgot to have one last week. It's my fault. Please don't fire me. Um, one of the things that we're giving attention to uh, beginning last week, continuing this week, and concluding next week is the particular question, what is the church's purpose? What is it that we're to do? As we've considered for the past six months who we are as a people, we now have to give attention to what it is that we do. And there are three particular vantage points that we need to consider. Last week we considered the first, that the church is outward-facing. In other words, that we're not simply called to be a holy huddle. Next week, we're going to consider the fact that the church is upward-facing regarding uh, the worship of the church. But we also have to recognize that there is an inward focus uh, that the church is called to give attention to. So outward, upward, inward. It should be easy to remember. Outward in terms of the Great Commission, evangelism and discipleship. Upward in terms of worship and inward regarding the fellowship or communion of the saints. And that's what we're going to give our attention to this evening. We're going to have a kind of bird's eye view of what the New Testament tells us about the nature of Christian fellowship. We see this here in Acts chapter two, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, which describes the life of the people of God from Pentecost forward. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and speaking of the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Does that sound familiar? It's the very thing we looked at this morning. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let us pray and ask that he bless his word. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you as we consider the life of your church in the book of Acts, and we reflect upon uh, uh, this passage. We ask that it would give shape to the life of this congregation as well, uh, that we would not be defined by uh, modern understandings uh, of fellowship or foreign imports, but rather that your scripture would set the bounds of the nature of the communion we have with Christ and each other. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the questions that we face is a very basic question, how is it that Christians grow? And of course, uh, the very basic answer, one that we've given attention to a few weeks ago, is this. The church grows through the ministry of the Word, uh, the sacraments, and prayer. Ordinary means of grace. It is, uh, it's not rocket science. In fact, for many, it kind of comes across as something very dull. 
something that you do week in and week out. Yet this is, this is the means that the Lord has ordained to cause us to grow, not just in numbers, but also in maturity. And of course, we see all these things coalesce like tributaries kind of converging into a mighty rushing river. They coalesce in the context of the church. It is in the church that we hear the word preached and proclaimed. It is in the church that the sacraments are administered faithfully. It is in the church that we gather together for prayer of adoration and the confession of sin and and intercession for the needs of Christ's church and thanksgiving uh, for all that he's done for us and for the petitions uh, that we lift uh, before him. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2, this particular passage, is all of these particular elements pop up. They devote themselves to the ministry of the word, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. There are two distinct things. One has to do with the Lord's Supper. The other actually has to do with the common life of the people of God. In other words, the church is something more than a movie theater. It's not something that you just show up, you know, you, you kick back your little, your little shot glass thimble of grape juice, and then you dart out the door as soon as church is over with having no actual relationships with the people uh, in the building. How many larger churches, and I'm not preaching against large churches, but how many, uh, you know, you have churches with thousands of members actually have that. There's no real space for fellowship, and yet people think uh, uh, that that church is going along just fine because they've showed up. But what we see here is there's an actual participation. There's an element that is involved that, um, that is more than just what you do when you go to a movie theater. When you go and you just kind of gaze at the speaker or the TV. There's an actual engagement that goes on here. I think we have such a truncated view of fellowship. I think if you were to ask, what is church fellowship? You might go, well, that's the thing that we do right after church on a Sunday morning where we have the delicious snacks and the coffee and the drinks. And I think the answer is, yes, that is a part of it. And it's an important part of it. But it is not the only part of it. And this evening, we're going to give our attention to why it is uh, uh, that uh, I, I, I claim this to be the case. That our concept of fellowship, of Christian friendship, is something that runs much deeper than we often give credit for in the Scriptures. And something that we find here is fellowship is not something that is simply a tack-on to the Christian experience, but it is something that is vital to the Christian life and spiritual growth. This evening, I would like us to consider the biblical view of fellowship and how it helps us grow as believers. I think the first thing we need to recognize is that this word fellowship that you see here uh, comes from a particular Greek word. I'm not typically the guy who will tell you what the Greek word is. I think people who do that are often a little too snooty for my opinion. Um, But I'm going to be that snooty guy tonight. Uh, for a particular reason. The reason is this, is that there are two main words in Greek that describe the fellowship that we have with one another, and yet that word for fellowship is translated roughly two dozen different ways in the NIV. And so it's hard to find and see that continuity that's running throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Those two words, I'll give the noun forms of them, are koinonia, and I'm not going to quiz you on that, but if you're somebody who does word studies, I think that is your starting place. 
Because if you just did a word search for fellowship, you might only find three or four instances in your translation of the Bible where that word pops up, when the reality is it pops up several dozen different places uh, using a number of different Greek words in a way in which uh, this this word is so rich that it's translated uh, roughly a dozen, dozen and a half different ways, at least in the NIV. The ESV also has five or six different ways. And what we find is the reason why, and that's not to belittle the NIV. The NIV is helpful in a lot of ways, but the difficulty is that this is such a rich word that there's difficulty in translating the richness and complexity of this word so that you actually have to give it kind of a different English word depending upon the passage given its particular context. So for instance, the ESV, which is uh, uh, typically the, pat, the, book, the, the translation I, I read from on, on Sunday mornings and evenings here in the pulpit, uh, will translate this word uh, as belonging, as companionship, Fellowship, contribution, partaking, participation, partnership, sharing. And before you, you're rushing to write all these down, I actually have this on the handout there for you. So you can give your hand a little bit of a rest. I should have said that beforehand. I, see, I saw smoke arising from some people's uh, journals, and I thought, oh, maybe, maybe it's the time to let you know I'm here to help you out. That's what these handouts are for. I think just by looking at it, you begin to see that there's a lot more than has in co- common than simply uh, having a cup of coffee with somebody after the morning service. The word pops up not just as a noun, but also as a verb uh, in several places. Things that we are to do together. It is a description both of not only what we do, but also it describes who we are as a people. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to kind of group these into four uh, basic ways, but just uh, before we get started, I want you to, to think about the, the various ways in which it's used. It's used to describe that common bond that we have with our Savior in the word, sacraments, and prayer. It describes the relationship that we hold with our Savior in the midst of suffering in this life. It describes the friendships that we have with other believers. It's the word used to describe the Lord's Supper. That it is a participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a word that describes the sharing of our spiritual needs and concerns with one another. It is used to describe the church's financial support of its own pastors and ministers. Something that I find very important. Never mind. Galatians 6.6, by the way, if ever you're thinking, where does he get that from? It describes the gospel partnership that we have with other congregations in evangelism and missions. It's a word that uses to describe the diaconal offering, the care for the poor, as we've been giving attention to on Sunday mornings. It's even used to describe hospitality. That's a pretty loaded term, don't you think? So I think what we need to do is we kind of need to treat this something like a Rubik's Cube. We need to kind of collate the different passages together under certain groupings to help give us a big picture idea of what is it that we mean when we speak of the communion of the saints? What is it that we're to do? Because what we see is there is uh, really and truly an inward focus that we have. Of course, we are outward focused. We are to be evangelistic based. We are to be concerned with missions and discipleship. Uh, but we're also supposed to be concerned with the growth and maturity of, and the life of the people of God within the context of the church. So I think what we have before us are four basic principles 
um, that Scripture gives that helps us to understand this rich biblical concept of Christian fellowship. And before I get ahead of myself, let me just say, by the way, that if you're looking for a good book that does something of a word study that addresses some of this, if you're familiar with Jerry Bridges, he has a little book called True Community that is outstanding. I really recommend it. It's a great small group resource if you're looking to to study a book with somebody. Um, Jerry Bridges, he he recently passed maybe two or three years ago, was just one of my favorite authors. He was really instrumental in helping me understand the gospel in college with his book, The Disciplines of Grace. True uh, True Community, I believe is what it's called. It's been a while since I've read it. It, it's It's a delightful little book. So shameless plug. And then when you um, after hearing that, you go, oh, this is so excellent. Where did you get this from? I, I'm plagiarizing it in many ways from, from this little book, at least, at least chunks of it. Um, the first principle that we have before us, again, if, considering the broader definition, that fellowship is, we might put it like this, to share in a common life. That's how Jerry Bridges describes it. That the fellowship that we have with one another is a share that we have, a participation we have in a common life together. You think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, another outstanding little book on what the church should be doing uh, as a community. Well, the first principle we have to consider is that our union with Christ grounds our union and our communion with other believers. You see that here in the handout, principle number one. Our union with Christ grounds our union and communion with other believers. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. Or you could just hear me read it in just a second. It's times like this, I wish I could turn the pages faster. All right, 1 John chapter 1. Um, let's begin in verse 1. This is uh, such a wonderful opening. It's probably my, one of my favorite openings to any New Testament book. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, this is an apostle speaking of the fact that he has been an eyewitness to the incarnation, the earthly ministry, ministry excuse me, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to this life and we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Notice the the discussion and language of fellowship there in this passage. There's a vertical and a horizontal aspect to the fellowship of which uh, the Apostle John is attesting. Truly, more foundationally, our fellowship is with the triune God. Here the focus is on God the Father and God the Son. Implicitly, of course, it comes by the Spirit. We've been united to Christ by faith in our effectual calling. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You read questions 29 to 32. We'll fill that out even further. But because of the fact that we have been united to Christ by faith, what we find is for everyone else who has been united to Christ by faith means that we now have a fellowship with one another. The, The vertical, as it were, grounds the horizontal. Because we are united to Christ by faith, that means we now have a union and a communion with everyone else who has been bound to Christ 
by faith. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.9. He says, God is faithful by whom all y'all were called. That's my translation. All y'all, second person plural, were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't have enough time to go into this. We could treat an entire uh, evening series on this. But here, what we're getting at is the doctrine of our union with Christ. John Murray puts it like this, that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. That Christ proclaimed to us, and when Christ is given to us, we're given so many benefits. Justification, adoption, sanctification, all those other attending benefits. But more importantly than all those other benefits, we are given Christ himself. In fact, Calvin says in Book 3 of the Institutes, without Christ, so long as we remain outside of Christ, all that he has accomplished remains outside of us and is useless to us unless we are united to him. Our salvation is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card, but rather what we see is it entails a restoration of a broken fellowship with God. The most common New Testament descriptor to to describe believers is not that of Christian, it's not that of disciple. It's not even that of believer. The most common descriptor you have is this, that you are in Christ. It's a phrase used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Speaking of those who have been united to Christ, it speaks of our union with God and our communion with Him. Our union with Christ is an unbroken bond where nothing can separate you from the love of God. And yet in our communion with Christ, it deals with the depth of our relationship with Him, which can be hindered by our own sin. That's why there are times when when we all fall into grievous sins, we feel like that there has been some fracturing that has taken place. Though you still remain united to Christ, there is that reconciliation, uh, that restoration of that communion bond that still needs to take place. That's why Paul will speak of grieving the Spirit. But what we see here in 1 John is that John tells us that because our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, therefore we are extending that same offer to you that you would join us, that your joy, that our joy would be made complete. You think of C.S. Lewis's autobiography. What's the title of that autobiography? Surprised by what? Rational thought? A convincing argument? No, what what was the cause of Lewis's conversion? It was the fact that he was surprised by the nature of joy, that there, there is true joy that is to be found in Christ, that joy in many ways can serve as its own apologetic. That for so many that are lost in sin, and in despair. That there is a real fellowship to be had within the communion of the saints. That the world should look at the fellowship that is found amongst believers and say, I want that. We will, they will know we are Christians by our love. That our love for one another serves as an apologetic It is a defense of the faith. This is something that should be as convincing, and for some people it might be more convincing than a rational debate in in debating philosophy. As important as that aspect of defending the faith is, we're not just here to defend propositions. We are here defending a common life together. 
Jerry Bridges puts it like this in his book, True Community. The vertical aspect of fellowship, that of union and communion with God, provides both the foundation and the pattern for that horizontal aspect of fellowship among other believers. That's the biblical word that is given here, this bond of union that we have with one another, both with Christ and with each other, is that of fellowship. At its most basic level, it is a relationship, not simply an activity. It is a thing. It describes who we are, what we are. Just as the husband-wife relationship in an example. Even when a husband and wife are on the outs with one another and the husband is yet again sleeping on the couch another night of the week, it doesn't mean they cease to be husband and wife. The communion might be fractured temporarily, but the union is still there. They are still husband and wife. That gives us a picture of a relationship with one another. It gives a picture of what it looks like uh, to repent and to seek forgiveness, to know that there is an undercurrent of love that we have towards one another. In other words, what we see is that what unites the people of God, more more basic than simply a common purpose, such as worship or missions or shared political interests or shared movie interests or music uh, interests, what unites us together is our shared life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism signifies this union, this incorporation into a single body. Ephesians chapter 1, there is one body as we've been baptized into that one body by one spirit in a single confession of one God, one Lord, one spirit. So much is emphasized in the New Testament on the unity that has been granted to the church. And Paul says what? Be eager to maintain that unity that you already have. He's not saying, okay, now you guys are kind of a loose hodgepodge collection of individuals. Uh, rally together and try, to, try to, to stick it through together. Unify. No, rather what Paul says, you guys all are already one. So be eager to preserve that unity. Even when you fall on out with one another, be quick to repent. Be quick to forgive. That is a community in action, a community that seeks to preserve uh, its union with one another. So that's our first principle. Our union with Christ grounds our union uh, with and communion with other believers. The, uh, what's this one? Vertical grounds the horizontal. That's our first principle. Second principle, our Christian fellowship, our life together, this horizontal aspect, is concerned with mutual spiritual growth. Uh, If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Real quick, or you can just hear me read it. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, But exhort one another every day, so long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. That share speaks of that fellowship, that communion bond that we have. It's that same word. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's an exhortation that we are given. There is a duty that we have to exhort one another, to provoke everybody to good works. Why? Because we have come to share in Christ. 
We've come to have a common life in Christ. So there is an encouragement to exhort one another to continue that life in Christ. Hebrews 10 says something very similar, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together of the saints as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, there's an, there, we're called to be accountable to one another in terms of temptation and weakness. You think of Ephesians 5.18 where he, he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. How is it that you're filled with the Spirit? Well, it's not by getting drunk, but rather it is by what? By singing. By addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Perhaps that should shape the, the nature of how it is that we sing to the Lord, where it doesn't sound like we're at a, a funeral. I'm not saying that we, we sound like we're at a funeral, or something, but I'm saying that, uh, you know, uh, Paul's giving this contrast between uh, being filled with the Spirit and being filled with alcohol. Wh- which, it, which is it that the Christian's supposed to do? You're not supposed to get drunk, but rather you're supposed to sing. What happens at the day of Pentecost when, when the saints are singing together? Um, and, and, and speaking in tongues, all these other uh, extraordinary things that we see take place. Everybody thinks that they're all drunk and it's 10 o'clock in the morning. These are people who are delighting in the worship of God. There's a nearly identical passage in Colossians 3 um, that I, I won't read here, but you have it listed here in your handout where Paul here situates those same commands in terms of a, metri- a mutual exhortation within that broader perspective. You've been called into a single body. So exhort one another unto good works. Uh, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Let that word dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your heart to God. Uh, Jerry Bridges puts it like this. It says, ideally, fellowship groups should seek to incorporate all these aspects. Bible study, the sharing of needs, accountability and prayer for one another. It's our second principle. Again, the first principle is we've been united to Christ by faith that grounds our fellowship with one another. That second principle we see here, that Christian fellowship is concerned with mutual spiritual growth. We are concerned that you look more and more like Jesus. But it's not just that. Third principle, and this is something that I I shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on because I've now preached, I think, four sermons on it for the past uh, month. Um, But you see principle number three, Christian fellowship is concerned uh, not just with spiritual needs, but also with the material needs of fellow believers. That we are called to care for one another in terms of both body and soul. You turn real quick to Romans chapter 12. Uh, I have it uh, listed so you can can read it later, Uh, but I'll, I'll just read sections of it right here. Romans chapter 12, verses 5 to 13. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, see that those acts of mercy are put on par with all the other so-called spiritual gifts that we speak of. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, Paul uh, groups those, what we might call the, the material concerns. Uh, he just throws them right there in with all of the other spiritual gifts and, and concerns as well. These are, these are things that we're called to do for one another. Hospitality is, in fact, a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. How great is it to have somebody uh, uh, offer to cook you a meal? Um, I'm not just saying that as a single guy. But how great is it for somebody to cook you a meal and have you over into their homes? You get to hang out on a Friday night or whatever night of the week it is you tend to hang out. Uh, there, there's, there's a real, uh, real sweetness there, especially when it's done by believers. I think what's worth noting um, is that the most common usage of that word fellowship that we find in the New Testament, in all of its, uh, the, the four different ways in which the Greeks, kind of uh, different Greek words, um, the most common usage of it regards that of sharing materially with those in need. It's the same word that's used to describe the Lord's Supper. It's the same word used to describe the diaconal offering. It's the same word used to describe the fellowship meal. Perhaps that should give us a hint of how it is that we think of these elements of the service. It is a sharing in a common life. We share in our common uh, uh, monetary goods for the benefit of the people. We share in the body and blood of Christ, knowing that we have been bound up and united in a single body. And we share uh, in the fellowship, in the communion that we have with one another. Again, um, I, I typically would spend more time on this principle than I think any of the others, but I've spent the past four sermons uh, preaching on this so, hopefully I don't have to convince you much more. We are, we are to concern ourselves with both the spiritual and material needs of others. It is a begging to, for the grace of taking part of participating in the relief of the saints. Uh, I should at least note that according to 1 John 3.16, this is not merely a suggestion. This is, in fact, an obligation. John puts it like this, that if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, John is asking a very legitimate question. That If you say you're a Christian and you refuse to help your brother in Christ, you need to be asking yourself, am I even a Christian? That is the question that John is putting to the people of God in 1 John chapter 3. We have a legitimate concern that we, an obligation that we owe towards one another. Again, as we heard this morning, it is not an uh, early form of Christian socialism, but rather it's simply, uh, according to your abilities, seek to give cheerfully that those in need might be supplied with their need as an expression of God's own love for us. Hebrews 13, 16 says something similar. Do not neglect to do good and to share, koinonia, what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's why we call it the offering, the giving of our funds. It's described as a sacrifice. And so it might, it might sting a little bit, right? That's, that's the nature of sacrifice. It hurts. 
but it's a good thing. In Galatians 6.10, we are called to share primarily with other Christians. It's not simply giving a, a, a description of how you should act indiscriminately with your funds as you're walking down uh, downtown Albany or downtown Portland. Uh, that's good. There's nothing wrong with giving to, to the poor and unbelievers. In fact, the diaconate has some regard with respect to that. But Galatians 6.10 says to have that concern, especially towards the household of faith. Again, as we saw that proper ordering this morning, you provide for your immediate family, then your church family, then the world. There's a proper, a proper ordering of our priorities because we've been bound to one another in fellowship. Finally, principle number four, Christian fellowship concerns itself with a joint outward focus. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It's that word koinonia. Because of your fellowship, your joint participation, that common life in the gospel from the first day until now. Philippians 4.15 And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership entered into that fellowship with me in giving and receiving except you only. In other words, the church body partners together with other congregations for missions and evangelism, right? Not everybody gets to go to Timbuktu. It'd be very expensive if all of us tried to do a mission trip where we all just uprooted ourselves and went and moved to Timbuktu. But what we could do as a church is we can support one missionary. We can pray for a number of missionaries Right? In a way that is not a Lone Ranger Christianity. Even our missions should exemplify our understanding of the common life that we have together in Christ. That's why when our focus is on planting, uh, uh, doing church plants, and hoping that those churches will grow and plant other churches and eventually establish regional churches or what we call presbyteries. And it helps us to understand the nature of the Great Commission that it's not simply us trying to support and have all the financial burden fall upon this one individual congregation, but rather we uh, ally ourselves with the rest of the congregations in our presbytery and our denomination to support those missionaries abroad. It's one of the things I actually love about our denomination. We fully fund our missionaries. We don't have as many missionaries as other denominations do, um, but a lot of those missionaries have to spend their time on sabbatical, raising funds so that they can go back. Uh, that, that is not the case with, with our, our full-time missionaries. We, we fully support uh, our missionaries. Um, which, so that when they, can, when they can take that sabbatical and they come home, they can actually rest. Um, what, what an idea. What a concept um, to give them a chance uh, to rest. But Paul calls this a partnership in the gospel. Right? It costs money to eat, to travel, to get your passport, to get shots, to pay rent, to get internet access so you can write your family members, to write letters, to print out curriculum, to pay for Bibles, to have translations, to have clothes on your children's back because you've uprooted all four of your kids to go cross-country to Ethiopia and all these other needs. See, part of the church's task, as we've been called into fellowship with one another, is not just a fellowship with those within these four walls, uh, but a fellowship with the other saints uh, both near and far. And there are many ways we can do this. And again, as we've seen, uh, the that's why the diaconal offering is, is part of that fellowship. It's an overflow of that common life that we have together. Wrapping this up, probably went a little too long this evening, I'm sorry, but my point is this, that the New Testament concept of fellowship is something much more rich than simply coffee and donuts, as much as I love donuts, Okay. 
I'm not, I'm not preaching against donuts, okay? Don't walk away misunderstanding me. Donuts are great, but fellowship is more than donut time. How great is that? To have something even better than donuts. So my goal this evening is for us to, to survey the, the New Testament use of this word. Not look, we didn't look at every single passage, but I wanted to give you a sampling of the rich ways in which the New Testament sees the fellowship that we have with one another. That our fellowship is intimately connected, of course, with those outward and ordinary means of grace. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. It's a giving of ourselves spiritually and materially. It's not an option in the body of Christ because we belong to one another. We could perhaps describe Christian fellowship along these lines, that it is a community brought together under the Word, that has been nourished by the Word, together in the Word, for the sake of spreading the Word. Or as our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26.1, which we confessed this morning, uh, how it puts it like this, that all the saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His grace, His sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. What a wonderful gift the Lord has given His church here on earth. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for your people. We ask that we would come to delight more deeply in the fellowship that we have in one another through Christ Jesus our Lord. As we consider this fellowship, we ask that we would give thanks to you for providing us with an unspeakable gift uh, and above all for giving us an even greater gift than that, fellowship with your Son. Bless us this week as we pray, keep your church safe, protect us from all harm, and cause your church to grow. The people in this neighborhood and in the community would see the love we have for one another and envy it and seek to have fellowship not only with us, but with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.